Dear Lord, in your mercy and your grace, cover us with your spirit and fold us in your grave, in your grace, that we might trust in you and that we might know you and that we might rely on you for all things, Lord. We commit this, Lord, praying all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I need your help to move this forward. Yeah. You know, in this verse 1, there is this thesis that if we are in the Lord Jesus, uh, therefore there is now no condemnation. You stand in righteousness and are loved by God. Um, for how, I mean, how many of you of this, when you read this, you really take this to heart? that there is therefore now no condemnation. I'd like you to think a little bit, what are you being condemned for? In life, are you being condemned for some things? I'd like to read out one thing which uh, this guy, Matt Redman, had written specifically for mothers on Mother's Day because he said he knows that many women feel very condemned. He wrote, Mothers, or those who perform this mothering role, even though you may feel you are, you are not condemned by your messy home. You are not condemned by your lack of desire to homeschool. You are not condemned by your personal sins. You are not condemned by the difficulty of caring for your special needs child, a difficulty which wounds down very deep. You're not condemned by the knowledge of how easy it is for you to love one child more than another. You're not condemned by your miscarriages. You're not condemned by your lack of desire to have more kids. You're not condemned because you have no desire to adopt. You're not condemned even though you feel it when you read over and over about other people's perfect parenting moments on Facebook. You're not condemned by your inability to cook. You're not condemned because your kids are not normal. You're not condemned because you are divorced and doing it alone. You're not condemned by your desire to be alone, away from the kids for a time, every single day. You're not condemned by your body, which may not be what it once was. You're not condemned by your repeated failures as a mother. You're not condemned by your rebellious children. You're not condemned by the frustration of having to scrape mac and cheese off the kitchen floor again and again. You're not condemned by all the fears and tears which flirt with insanity and take you to the precipice of despair. You're not condemned by not being able to throw the birthday party of the year for your kids. You're not condemned for not feeding your kids meals that did not come from McDonald's or any other fast food joint. You're not condemned by your need for a vacation away from the kids. You're not condemned because you cannot take your kids on exciting vacations. You're not condemned for not living up to the standards of your mother or your mother-in-law. You're not condemned by the stares of those who have no kids when yours erupt into volcanic streams in public places. 
Mothers, even though you may feel condemned, if you are in Christ, you are not condemned. This is the real reality. You're not condemned because you are in Christ. Your identity as a sinner before a holy God, your righteousness, is Christ alone. Therefore, the enjoy the unending love and affection and acceptance of being a daughter perfectly loved with an unwavering love that flows from your Father in heaven. And to all those who are not mothers, do nothing as pastors, husbands, sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, mother-in-laws, father-in-laws, friends, acquaintances, and advice givers, do nothing to diminish this reality. Nothing. This passage in Romans has been a very alarming passage for many people. It has been a signal and a point when people actually transform. I don't know if you've read, if you've already been following the, uh, the bulletin, the uh, reading plan, have you been actually uh, reading Romans chapter 8? If you haven't, I'd invite you to take a moment to just go through Romans 8 and let it speak to you. It begins with this great first statement, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who are in Christ Jesus. Earlier on, I had this uh, particular uh, picture. Uh, I'm just going to ask, can you move the slide forward? Yeah. I had this picture that showed um, Cecilia. And Cecilia, in a way, had a family. Can you, next slide, please. Uh, this was a family. She had a six-year-old brother. Uh, she was four years old, and her parents, uh, in, in particular her mother, was uh, um, Paula. Uh, Paula was the one who actually decided to cover uh, Cecilia at the moment of impact when this came in. We understand this uh, from this point of, uh, of grace in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. What is condemnation? Uh, condemnation is when you encounter a disaster upon yourself, when you are convicted of something. And so when, when a person is, is in a plane crash, they are condemned. Uh, they are encountering a, an event, a disaster that condemns them to death. So when Christ says there is therefore now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus, it is in a way saying that those who are in Christ have this protective covering that this, the consequences of the punishment and sin that is placed upon them is taken up and covered for. And that's why we always refer to Jesus as an atonement or a propitiation. An atonement is a cover. It is a covering on those who are in a way in danger, in wrath by God. Now, I want to, to go back a little bit to, to uh, chapter 7. Uh, if you will go, uh, next slide, please. In chapter 7, uh, we have Romans 7, verse 21 to 25 that talks about the man. Okay? I'm just going to refer in Romans as we read Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. You remember in Romans chapter 1 last week when I said verse 16, 17, and 18. The righteousness of God has been revealed through the cross, the gospel. But that revelation of God's righteousness also reveals to us the wrath of God. So uh, from chapter 1, uh, 
uh, going all the way to chapter 20. That's the first portion of Romans if you were to divide it into, into four portions. The second portions from 118 onwards to chapter 4 uh, deals with the issue of uh, the Gentiles who are condemned because although God has revealed all of, all of nature and all of His works to them, they don't believe. And then the Jews who have the law, although they have the law, they don't know God and they are themselves also therefore condemned. And so this is the inner person and the outer flesh of a person that has not been redeemed or as some people would say regenerated by the coming of the Holy Spirit. He is darkness all outside. In his flesh and in his inner man, all he thinks about is himself, his unique concern for his own uh, particular situation. Next slide, please. He then encounters this uh, situation where the Spirit of God comes into him because of what Christ has done on the cross. So let me read 7, 21 to 25. Chapter 7, 21 to 25. So I find this law at work. This is the law that uh, God gave to Moses to give to his people. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So we have the situation where Paul describes the situation of man. He has received the light of Christ into his life. By Jesus' act on the cross, he has gained salvation. But in his flesh, he is still sinful. Next slide, please. And so he has this particular situation. His outer flesh has a tendency to sin. But his inner man, right, the Spirit of God in him that has rejuvenated and renewed him, is heading and wanting to get towards God. Now you recall, uh, next slide, the, in 118 I mentioned that the wrath of God has been revealed. Okay, the wrath of God has been revealed and this wrath is being poured out not just on sinful man, but also on people who are followers of God. And so, next slide. We have this contrast now. Given that the wrath of God is still happening and we're still suffering from sin in 118, in our sinful flesh, how then do we live a life that is pleasing to God? Okay. Uh, one that transforms us from what we were in previously in darkness to a situation where we can now uh, live well with God. And so, Paul says here in Romans 8.1, we have no condemnation. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean that we are not deserving of condemnation. In a way, we say that, yes, there are times when we do things that are rightfully condemned. But there is no condemnation in the sense that those who are in Christ 
they are a work in progress, they are being inwardly transformed as we go along. And so we remember this in 8.1.2, God's wrath is being revealed against all godlessness, but there is no condemnation, next, uh, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? What does Paul mean when he says you are in Christ Jesus? And it's an important question to answer. Because it's not as if that Jesus is physically next to you and you can just step into him. It's not as if like just now I had a blanket and you just cover yourself and say, okay, I'm in Jesus now. What does being in Christ Jesus mean? Paul consistently has pointed out that being in Christ Jesus is when we believe in him and not only believe but follow in him. It is belief and obedience. It is a following after Him. Now, what happens when we believe in Jesus Christ? Uh, this is the one thing that happens that we see. Next slide, please. Yeah. What Paul is describing in, in uh, this Romans chapter 8, 2 to 4, right, I read that, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. All the chapters earlier on, from chapter 2 all the way up to chapter 7, is describing how the law that had been given to the Jews, although it was a good law, none of them, nonetheless, could not save them. The law, in terms of that person there trying to uh, free themselves from sin and death, or rather the wrath of God, the law represents that, uh, what do you call it, that bolt cutter. It tries to break this, but unfortunately is unable to. Next slide, please. Oh, no, go back one. <laughs> and so what Paul has been trying to describe through all the situation is that although man tried to live a good life, okay, he tried to do what was given to him as the Ten Commandments, he couldn't. And he kept breaking those laws. I need you to remember that in all the history of the Old Testament, the people tried to do what was good, of their own strength but their sinful nature could not the ten commandments were given to them after they had been rescued from egypt after not before it was a grace given to them but even though they were given that law after that they still wanted to do things according to their own way and they expected god to just uh, wipe the sin every once in a while just because he was supposed to do so and so just complying with the law did not save them. Now, I would like to ask us as people, how many of us as Christians, uh, although we are saved by grace, that we are covered in righteousness and we acknowledge that we are saved by sin and death, not because of our righteous works, but because of God's grace, how many of us nonetheless continue to be, live very legalistic lives. We condemn others. So, so it's, a, it's an irony. It says, you know, therefore there is now no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus. But many Christians who are in Christ Jesus condemn others. Uh, you live like that, no? How can you call yourself a Christian? How can you be like this? 
And the legalism goes very far, very extensive. It is not just in terms of how we live our life, but also the way we do church. The clothes that you wear, the rituals that we say, the things that we do. It becomes a very legalistic environment. I'd like you to consider this, that the law did not set people free. It was kindness that caused man to repent. And it is a great cultural challenge for us. You know, we go to school, we've gone to Chinese school, we've gone to uh, Kabangsaan school, we say, the fear that we use in order to get people to conform, the fear gets us to conform. But it is a conformance based out of legalistic fear. They are afraid. They do this only because they are afraid that they will be punished if they don't, not because they want to. Which means to say, once they get over the fear, or they're no longer afraid of you, all hell breaks loose. And so I have to speak to some people, uh, teachers sometimes, that yell and scream at the children in class. And yes, when they are very young, you yell and scream at them, they are afraid of you because you are very big. But you try that when they are 16, 17, 18 years old, and they start muttering to themselves, one day I am going to go and hit you back. And then rebellion comes in. The law tells you what is wrong, but the law doesn't give life. This is what Paul is saying. Next slide, please. The breaking of the power of sin came through this act of Christ on the cross because he alone fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And he is representative. In the same way, Adam's sin brought uh, condemnation and wrath on all mankind because of his sin. The same way, Jesus is the second Adam that comes. And his representation and our association and our being in Jesus basically resolves that. And because of what he does, he alone had the power to overcome this bondage to sin and death. Him. Him alone. Why is it that we don't have a right to condemn? Because like Paul says in chapter 2, you who condemn others, don't you do it yourself? What kind of hypocrisy is this that you are dependent on God releasing you? And yet, when others are also in a form of bondage, you basically condemn them. And that's why this forgiveness is crucial in what Jesus says. You know, unless his prayer, unless you forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Forgiveness is necessary because you, you, you find it very hard to forgive someone you condemn. But when you forgive someone, you have released them from that condemnation and you say to yourself, freely I have received this grace from God, freely I give to you. Although you won't want to, you won't feel like it. But that is the only power that has the ability to break this bondage to sin and death. I ask you, brothers and sisters, in the upbringing of those under your care, have we resorted to this? 
we resorted to condemnation in order to get people to fall in line to where we want them to be. When what we need is God's grace. Now, remember that Jesus was not going around not condemning people. <laughs> he did. He called the hypocrites, you bunch of hypocrites, you vile and treacherous people, you brood of vipers. He condemned them, but then he's God. <laughs> Why not? But in the same way that he condemned them, he also provided a way to show them what is right and how we go about doing it. So when people ask me, you know, it's like, so when someone does something wrong, what do you tell them? I, I point them to Christ now. I say, Christ has done what is right, what is needed. It is not for us and how we are supposed to do this. Let me turn to 8, 5 to 8. Chapter 8, verse 5 to 8 says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So here's this picture that tries to depict this. Uh, it is in a way describing a person who is kind of divided. In his inner man, he has the spirit living in him. But in his outer flesh, okay, the sin is in our flesh. Our tendency to do wrong is already inherent in our flesh. We desire everything else. And time and time again, we encounter all these situations. Uh, I, don't, I, I presume you have too. The temptation to money, the things that are of death, uh, to entertainment, to alcohol, to abuse, to lies, uh, to basically avoid God and do what we want. As opposed to the other side, which is a, an acknowledgement and an approaching of God. So, if ever you ask yourself, why? Why am I always in this conflict? Why do I do the things that I do not want to do? Paul says, it is inherent. It will carry on. It will continue until the day when you are fully transformed. So our salvation and our righteousness and this no condemnation is given in a point in the future because it's only when we stand before the throne of the grace that judgment is pronounced and we are said, no condemnation. But for now, we are in this process of getting there. And until this is fully accomplished, we are going to go through this wrestle. Now, if we go through this wrestling, how does Paul suggest that we overcome all these struggles? And his only answer is through the Spirit, through the life in the Spirit. And this is, in a way, how we are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus, receive that Spirit. Now, let's read uh, verse 9 to 17. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, 
then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. Now, if you're the type of person who likes to underline and color your Bible or you like to take notes, please note that down, right? It says there, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh but in the realm of the spirit if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. So if, if ever it has been unclear, right? I like to make it as clear as possible that in order for us to be in Christ, the Spirit of God needs to be in you. And they, do, they, they who do not have the Spirit of God do not belong to Christ. Okay, I don't know how many other ways I can say this. Huh? Those who do not have the Spirit in them do not belong to Christ. But if you are in Christ, this Spirit is in you. And it is this Spirit, which later on we read in, in verse 16 and 17, that tells us God is our Father, our Abba. There is this internal, quiet conviction of the Spirit that this is happening. Now, if this means for us that, oh, I'm not sure whether I have the Spirit of God in me, then come and talk to your small group leader, come and talk to me. Because it's serious. If you're not sure, and you don't know, and this Spirit of God is given freely, then you need to seek it out. And you ask the Lord, how will I receive this Spirit? Let's move on, please, in the slides. It says that we have an obligation. Verse 12. Right? Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. It is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But in the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So it says this. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you receive this Holy Spirit in you, right, and you have received this grace where there is no condemnation on you, then there is this obligation. Uh, next slide, please. You are obliged to listen to the Spirit and to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now, it is a struggle. It's not meant to be like kacang. But I will put it to you, I have met people who initially come and say, I am struggling, I am always struggling with anger. I'm always struggling with envy. I'm always struggling. Okay, so they naturally feel it in their inner self. Ask them the same question five years later, ten years later. And their answer is, last time I used to feel that way, now I don't feel it anymore. Is it because they have told themselves, don't think about it, don't think about it, don't think about it, and therefore they don't think about it? No, because the moment you tell yourself, don't think about it, you are thinking about it. But how is it that we encounter some people by, by this movement of the Holy Spirit in them, something happens that they get changed? I mean, for those of you who have uh, heard testimonies of many of our friends from Malaysian care in prison and drugs ministries, for those of you who attended Alpha, or, or those of you in your small groups itself, something has happened in a very deep, fundamental manner. 
And it's something which we can only ascribe to a movement of the Holy Spirit. It is not because the person has decided to behave himself. It's not just that. I sat down with uh, drug addicts, you know, from Malaysian care or, or convicts from prison. And they said, yeah, we've tried everything. They tell us to do this, this and they got all this, uh, cam this, cam that. Try all these different ways. Human strength. This is how is this different? And he says, in Malaysian care, it is the most successful drug rehabilitation program. And the number one answer is God. <laughs> we pray. We ask God, help us. It is not just through this human effort only, but it is through the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. So how do we deal with this? Well, one simple way is when you feel anger, when you feel envy, acknowledge it. Lord, God, I am angry. I am upset. I have blown my top. I have lost my control. I have done what is wrong. And I've given in to my base desire. And your word tells me I'm not to do so. I need your help, Holy Spirit. Come. It, it begins with an act of confession, repentance, and an appeal to God. Say, God, by your grace, help me, cover me. It doesn't go on the basis of, you know, I don't want to acknowledge that. They're rightly, they deserve it. I whack them nicely because they deserve it. That's no repentance. That's no acknowledgement that it was not right. Even if you feel justified, it is never right in order to basically use violence or force. The law tells you what is wrong, but the law doesn't give you life. Grace, forgiveness, that is the one that gives you life. Next. It says that the Spirit of God leads you to be heirs of God. Heirs of God. We, we you know, inherit God. Huh? Not only do we inherit the things that are of God, we are inheriting God Himself. God is ours, we are His. And the next one says, we are adopted into sonship, and we become co-heirs with Christ of His glory and His suffering. Uh, next to, yeah. Now, what does it mean to be adopted into sonship? I've said this before. We who were not originally Israelites or Jewish people, but we of the Gentile people whom the Holy Spirit was poured out on us, we became grafted into the vine, Jesus and we therefore become adopted into that family. Now, adoption in the Roman sense is a legal effect. It says that you now have full rights into the family. Did you know that in Roman law, adoption seems to be more powerful than biological uh, family? Because adoption was a legal effect. In other words, if I adopted you into my family, I could not revoke it. It is, it is pretty much done. Okay. And in this adoption, uh, you are brought from another family into this family. How we respond is in obligation. 
Now, if I if I adopted someone into my family, okay, done it before. If you if I adopt someone into my family, his obligation is to live according to my rules, so that he would be a part of my family. But if he is adopted into my family but continues to live like the other family, differently, then he is not in my family. Although I have adopted him. That is a form of a rejection of this family. Now that's where we are at. Are we people at this point in time, a people who recognize that we have been adopted into the family of God? Are we living in accordance to how God has called us to? Lastly, he ends there, verse seventeen. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Now, I'd like to bring that two together. Sometimes I feel I'm not doing chapter eight enough justice, but it's worth you going back and thinking about this. Chapter eight tells you you are not condemned. God has enfolded you and paid the price for your sin. He has brought you into relationship with Him through the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is through this Holy Spirit that transforms you into the likeness of Christ. And this Spirit is the same Spirit that tells you you are a child of God. Your greatest treasure. The one which, as I said in before, one which you cannot lose unless you yourself give it up. And this great treasure says, "I am a co-heir with Christ. He is my brother. He is my Lord, my Savior. But he calls himself my brother. But one condition about being an heir is you own everything. You see, if I get adopted into a family, right?" I am. I am theirs. They are mine. Okay, their assets are mine. Their liabilities are also mine. Okay. We like to say, "Oh, I inherit something positive," but you also inherit the suffering. I'm not talking so much about the debts, but here what Christ is saying is, in the same way that we inherit the glory of Christ, we also inherit the suffering of Christ. And so, when all the apostles understood this, and they were going through this uh, suffering, they said, "I glory in this, because in doing so, I am now in Christ." Far be it that we live a life where we only want the righteous inheritance of what is only positive. The suffering comes together. Next slide, please. So how do we fulfill our obligations? We have this statement: the true mark of a Christian is one who follows, one who follows Jesus. And you have that little figure there who has left behind his fleshly body. Do you remember all the pictures that we show outside there? We show that yellow guy with a outline that is black. That outline is supposed to represent his flesh, his body. But now his flesh is running towards this reminder that he is an heir of God, 
and he's leaving now his fleshly pursuits behind him. Going forward, let me ask you these uh, three questions. Let me just flash these three questions up. Will you practice a life of no condemnation? Right. When I say no condemnation, right, uh, what it means is you remind yourself that in spite of all my failures, my sins, my, my brokenness, Christ has redeemed me. I am no longer condemned. Why? Why is this important to have this reminder in yourself? Because your number one adversary, your number one enemy would like to keep condemning you. He is the accuser. He is the one who says that your goodness is dependent on your behavior. He says, ah, nah, see you lied to your wife just now. Ah, nah, you're so lazy, you never go and help this one. You terrible fellow. Nobody loves you. You are lazy. Condemn, condemn, condemn. Until people feel suicidal. They feel utterly useless and hopeless. And so the reminder that we are told is, there is no condemnation. Yes, our fleshly bodies are still struggling. But our inner man who has now been committed to Christ has been redeemed. And so we are in Christ. We're safe in Him. No condemnation of ourselves also means do not condemn others. Because you were once like them. Because you also rightfully have been forgiven what they have been forgiven. They just haven't arrived at the point where they understand it. So do this. Remind yourself, I am a child of God. There is no condemnation in me. Likewise, I am called to not condemn others. Secondly, will you check your mindset? Every time you're going through a conflict in your head and you are tempted to go and distract yourself, uh, play a bit more, one more round of golf, or go and watch another movie. And this mindset that you have, is it a mindset that is of the Spirit of God, which is right, true, pure, good, or is it your own fleshly mindset? Battle with that. And commend it to the Spirit. Which means to say what I said just now, confess it, Lord, I feel weak. I feel I want to do this. I'd rather do this than do the thing that I know I need to do. By your Spirit, grant me the strength to do so. Third, fulfill your obligation to God. If God has done this and adopted you into His family and He calls you His children and He's given you this inheritance, would you fulfill your obligation? Which is not just to have God, you know, you just have the perks without the, the obligations and the consequences. But to fulfill your obligation, which is to basically pursue what God calls you to do. I ask you to think through what is God asking you to fulfill as part of your obligation. The one challenge which you know in your flesh you don't want to do because your flesh is talking very loudly. But the one which God has asked you, this is something that He's placed in your heart. For me, my challenge for fulfilling God's obligation, follow. I could have just followed my own path and done things my way and been successful in the way of this world. 
but for me, it meant the other thing. And I've met many wonderful people who have done different things. I've met people who, although they were brilliant, uh, you know, high scoring, super A, ex everybody expecting them to be the best and the brightest, and they decided to be, I'm going to be the best and brightest teacher. And oh, good, good, good. People say, good, good, good. You can be a teacher. Come and join our private school. And they say, no, 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 no. I want to be a teacher in the government service in the kampong. Why? Because God has called me to be there. The Spirit speaks to this person. What is your obligation? What is God calling you to? Shall we bow our heads and pray? Dear Lord, let us uh, embrace this fact, Lord, that we are not condemned in Christ. That the wrath that is in this world is not a condemnation on us. But in our fleshly nature, Lord, you are calling us day by day to be transformed. Help us in turn, Lord, to be careful of what goes on in our mind, to sift through it, to watch over it, to spend our mornings and our evenings reflecting on the day that has gone past. And help us, O oh Lord, to follow you and to seek you and to fulfill our obligations that we not set it aside indefinitely, but that you help us to see where you're calling us to follow you. I commit this to you, Lord. May your spirit do its will. We pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And shall we rise as we sing this uh, closing hymn. As we sing this song, it's a reminder to us to allow the Holy Spirit uh, to reflect.